Wow, thank you, Dason. I'm going to tell Kim, when I die, I want you to do my funeral. That was very kind. Such a privilege to be uh, with you. I've uh, been looking forward to this for several months since Dason asked me to be a part of this conference and uh, so thankful to the Lord that we get to pull our minds together to think about serious issues regarding ministry. I was so blessed by what Tony said. Uh, I, I'm a pastor, so as he went to First Peter chapter 5, it just tuned my ears very quickly to not a conference session, but what the Lord might be saying to me personally. And I was so blessed by that. Tony, thank you for excellent exposition of that text. Um, it's been given to me to talk about feeding. And in order to talk about this, I want to I tell you what we're going to do in the next few minutes. We have three sections. The first part is going to be a, uh, a section on um, the problem. We're going to talk about what, 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 what problem are we actually dealing with. The second section is going to be the solution. Those are two different texts. But then I'm going to be a very practical, and it's just going to be kind of a, a fatherly pastor-to-pastor uh, -pastor talk at the end on the implications. If we understand the problem, we know the solution, then so what? What do we actually do about this situation that we find ourselves in? Preaching is the most defining part of any person's church. Let me say that again. Preaching actually defines your church. Because what you do in the pulpit tells the congregation and the world what you believe about the authority and the power of the Bible. If you teach the Bible, it tells us what you think about the Bible. If you get around the Bible and you don't anchor your message in the Bible, then that's a message about what we think about God's Word as well. One of the most misunderstood endeavors in the church is the act of preaching. Most people think it's a speech that you give on Sunday mornings or maybe other times during the week for everyone to listen to and they, they frame it up as a speech to be listened to rather than an actual shepherd's crook to use to care for the souls of the people in our churches. Yes, it is a speech given on Sunday morning or other times, but it's far more than a speech. It reveals what the preacher believes about the Word of God. And it also indicates what the congregation thinks about that as well. So, this is going to sound familiar, but first of all, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ezekiel. I know Tony just talked about that. When he, said, when he started talking about Ezekiel 34, I went, oh shoot, here we go. But, but he, he just skimmed off the surface, so I get to go a little bit deeper into it. If Ezekiel chapter 34, because this actually outlines the problem that we're dealing with, and it's not a new problem. It goes all the way back to the time of Ezekiel's writing and Ezekiel's preaching. And Ezekiel was dealing with a, a group of people who were stiff-necked, who were listening to anything and everything, and wanting their ears to be tickled in similar ways that Paul talked about and that we deal with ourselves. But look at Ezekiel chapter 34. Remember, right now we're just talking about the problem. Let's identify the problem that we need to try to correct. For 33 chapters, the word of God has come to the prophet Ezekiel. The word of God came to the prophet. The word of God came to the prophet. The word of God came to the prophet over and over and over. And it was always speak to the people. But something changes in chapter 34 that's significant. 
Verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, prophesy, listen to this, against the shepherds of Israel. Stop right there. That's a full stop. That's a head turner. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. In other words, preach to the preachers. Correct the correctors. That must have been like fingernails on a chalkboard to the leaders of Israel. They were expecting the word of the Lord to come again against the people. Not this time. What a profound statement. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, cursed be, woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? If you underline things in your Bible, if you mark things in your Bible, if you use a highlighter in your Bible, this is one you should probably mark. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Instead, verse 3, you eat the fat, clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat, the mature sheep, without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you've not strengthened. The disease you've not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. But with force, with severity, you've dominated them. This is just so well connected with what Tony was teaching us from 1 Peter chapter 5. And then this conclusion, what happened? They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock, wow, there's a transition. God now changes from you were the shepherd and those were your sheep to saying, no, these were, these were my sheep. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered all over the surface of the earth. There was no one to search or seek for them. When they went astray, the shepherds were not concerned about bringing them back, but feeding themselves. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Again, he's preaching to the preachers. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because of my, my flock has become prey. My flock has become even food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. My shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Do you get the idea that there's a, a divine kind of ordained babysitting that's going on here? You are to care for my sheep, my children, and you only cared for yourself. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against the shepherds. That's a hard sentence to even read. That God says, remember, the word for pastor is the word shepherds. I am against the pastors of Israel. And I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. They're going to lose their ministry. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. And then, as you heard a few moments ago, for the rest of the chapter, he talks about the fact that you failed, so I myself will be the shepherd. And we know that that, that great shepherd comes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. 
And that's another, another subject for another time. Here's a question. Pastors are expected by God to feed the sheep. Now, let's be logical about this. If you're not feeding the sheep, the sheep are doing what? They're starving. So what does it mean to feed the sheep? What do we give them that's food for their souls? That's the problem. The problem is pastors at this time weren't feeding the sheep. And if I could isolate a significant issue of what's going on in our day in the pulpits around America and the world, it would be the lack of feeding the sheep. We see issues like integrationism, where we take a few verses, something that looks like biblical fidelity and biblical loyalty, but we mix in the social sciences, sociology and psychology and the political ideologies, and we become a little bit politician and a little bit pastor in the pulpit. Or subjectivism. We just want to tell you what I think. Can, can I just share with you? Tomorrow morning, I will be with Mission Road Bible Church. What I think doesn't matter. My goal is to tell them what God thinks. And where do we find out what God thinks? He put it in a book. Not a video, but a book. We also deal with egotism. When you stand in front of people, people hear you and they can appreciate you and that can feed the ego of a man who becomes a man of himself instead of a man of God. We should become invisible. I love what John the Baptist said. He must what? Increase. And how does that work? Because I decrease. We deal with ignorance in the pulpit. Men just get up and say whatever comes to mind. They proof text. They use verses that are out of context and out of meaning, or they pet peeve, as we'll talk about in a minute. They just have a few things that they, you know, some men have a few things they want to say, and no matter what the text says, they come back to that, that agenda almost every week. And it all goes back to bad hermeneutics. They just don't interpret the word of God the right way. They, they don't let God mean what God means. I, um, I have a sweet wife named Kim, three sons, Luke, John, and Mark. I know we skipped Matthew, and, and I know there's, there, there, uh, there, there is no Matthew, and they're out of order. I know that, but they weren't named after the gospel writer, so give me some grace, please. If we had another baby, it would have been named Acts. So, but let's just say if I... My wife is back home right now. What if I, what if I ask Dason? Dason, go. While I'm at the conference, I want you to take my wife some roses and say, these are from Rick. He wants you to have these. So he shows up at the door, knocks on the door. Kim opens the door. Hey, Dason. Hey, Kim. Rick wanted you to have these roses. Oh, thank you. And she says to him, what do they mean? And he says, oh, I'm glad you asked. Because... If you leave these out in the sun, they will wilt in the noonday heat, and your beauty wilts as the day goes along. They also have thorns. That means if you touch them, you, you get hurt. That means that every time Rick is around you, you hurt him. You prick him with those thorns. What would she think? What would I think? Who determines what those roses mean? The one who gave them. Who determines what God's word means? 
the one who wrote it. The author's intent. Hermeneutics matter at every level. So what's the problem very, very quickly and very frankly? The problem is when shepherds or preachers don't feed the sheep with soul-satisfying food, which is the Word of God. So that's the problem. Let's ask the second question. What's the solution? For that, I want you to turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 3. Chapter 3. I'm going I'm to read this pretty quickly, but it's familiar territory. But this is where he sets up, he grabs kind of the problem that Ezekiel talks about and then builds on it to say, what is the solution? And he tells Timothy, who is, he's left as the pastor at the church that he founded in Ephesus. He says in verses 1 to 5, you need to first understand the context of biblical preaching. This is, this is the world that I'm calling you to be involved with. 2 Timothy 3, 1, realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be, see if this sounds familiar, lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, fighters, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to, this is the key, verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Verse 5 is powerful. These aren't people out in the world. These are people holding to a form of godliness. They're people saying that we can maintain our our. our relationship with sin in the world and our relationship with God and those are not in conflict. Paul says you need to avoid men like this. Now lest you think this just popped up then, if you go back to Isaiah 5.20, well, Isaiah says, woe to those who call evil good and call good evil. Is that not on the front page of our newspapers every day? Calling evil righteous and righteous evil? That was the context then and it's only increased to now. Difficult times will come in the last days. I, I, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but you do realize that we are closer to the end of time. We are closer to the return of Christ than they were. And you'll be closer tomorrow than today, and the day after tomorrow than tomorrow, right? Every day we're inching closer to the return of Christ. Can I just ask you, just as a devotional foot, do you, do you believe Jesus is coming back? That means you believe Jesus is alive. That means you believe in the resurrection. That mean, means that you believe Easter is more than a once-a-year sermon. That's everything. In verses 6 to 9, he looks at the opposition to biblical preaching even more intently. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses and expressed on Facebook. I'm sorry, I don't think it says that. Um, but I think that's a real close application. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's the same thing is said in Romans chapter 10 about the Jews who are always learning, but they never came to the knowledge of the truth. They're always talking about things they appreciate, but never talking about the things they apply. In Bible teaching churches, one of the 
greatest fear I have and the greatest problems I've seen and even our own church is people can easily confuse appreciating the truth for applying the truth. They think appreciation is application and it's not. Oh, I like that sermon. I like that book. I read that passage. That was good, but they do nothing about it. Appreciation and application are not the same thing. These had appreciated the truth, always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. They never applied it. Then he gives an example, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of a depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. And I don't want to get too far off on this, but it's talking about opposition to the truth. Can you imagine, this is a church where my, my good friend Logan shepherds and pastors, in fact, Logan's right back there. Can you imagine, Logan, if you, this is your place, the sacred desk where you preach God's word, and you have a beautiful atrium out there. Uh, in Kansas and Missouri, we need atriums because it gets really cold in the winter, and you, you, you have to have a place to gather. Can you imagine if some false teachers came in and just set up tables in the back? And as, as the flock was coming in, they said, hey, come, I want to tell you something that's, that's true about God's word that's not true. Do you think that the elders here at Faith Community or Logan would allow that to happen? Of course not. They would run them out like Jesus did the temple with a whip and, and a loud voice. And yet... Every day on social media, I am so burdened with the fact that the flock that God has given me charge over is accosted in Facebook and Twitter by all of those false teachers, and I can't run them out of the, out of the building. But they're always opposing, ever learning and not coming to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 9, but they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Look at the expectations in verse 10. Now you, <laughs> that's the false teachers. I love that. Now you. Let's talk about you for a minute, Timothy. You followed my teaching. You followed my example, my conduct. You followed my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions. And sufferings, I heard Tony talk about First Peter. That whole book is really about how to prepare people for suffering. Just as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, he was drug out and left in a ditch for dead because he was beaten so badly. What persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did, did you see what it says? It doesn't say all who live godly. You just have to want to and you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus expect persecution, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's going to get worse and worse, and it's worse today than it was then, and it'll be worse tomorrow than it is today. We are living in an opposition society. They are opposed to what we're teaching. I'm teaching a series right now on Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 on marriage. When I began the series a few weeks ago, I think it was about five weeks ago we started this series, my opening sermon was the difference between men and women and boys and girls according to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I felt 
silly having to say, you do know there's a difference between men and women, don't you? And yet we live in a world that's conflating and confusing that at every turn. It will move from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's the consequences of biblical preaching. You're going to be persecuted by these men. But then it changes in verse 14. He says, stay faithful to the Scriptures. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. If you go back to chapter 1, that's his mother and his grandmother. Moms, don't ever undermine your influence on your children. That from childhood you've known the sacred writings. There it is, the Scriptures, the sacred writings, specifically the Old Testament right here which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ. That's not saying Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. It's saying if you understand the Old Testament, you will understand that Jesus is the only option as the Messiah and the fulfillment. In context, now read a passage we're all familiar with. All Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, Paul's writings, Peter's writings, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You ever seen the circle there? Look at what he says. He says, all of God's word, all scripture is profitable for teaches. It teaches us what's right and wrong, the standard of God. For reproof, it tells us when we violate that standard. For correction, it tells us how to fix our lives according to the standard and looking at what we've done wrong. And then training in righteousness, it actually takes us back to the top, to the beginning and the standard, where we know how to live what God has taught. Stay faithful to believe the Scriptures, he says. It's inspired by God and it's profitable. Then he says, stay faithful to preach the Scripture, verse 1 of chapter 4. By the way, there's a lot of accountability in God's Word about the judgment we will face and the expectations God has for us. I have, I have no knowledge. If you do, I would love to know this. I don't know of a verse in God's word that has more accountability than this verse. It's stacks on stacks on stacks on stacks of accountability. I solemnly charge you, he's accountable to Paul. In the presence of God, there's the, the, the divine eyes that would gaze at this. And Christ Jesus there's the living, resurrected incarnation. Who is able, who is to judge the living and the dead? He's also the judge. And by his appearing in his kingdom, he's coming. There's an accounting coming. That is a massive amount of accountability. To do what? Preach the word. What do you preach? Men, what's the content of your oration, the content of your speeches on a Sunday morning? Do you preach the word? Be ready in season and out of season. It'll be easy sometimes and it'll be inconvenient sometimes. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. If you preach what God says and all God says and nothing more than what God says, you're going to get in people's kitchen. It's going to start scratching sins away and picking scabs on their own soul. 
Then look at this prophecy. For the time will come, verse 3, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, will turn away their ears from the truth, will turn aside to myths. They will want to go to churches that make them feel better and the speeches that they like instead of putting themselves under God's word that actually accosts their soul and gives them corrective salve so that they can be holy and blameless before the Lord. You know, we said you can tell a lot by, about a church by what happens in the pulpit. You can tell a whole lot about a person by what kind of church they choose to be a part of and to listen to. So we've talked about the problem, not feeding the sheep, the solution, preach the word. So what? Now, this is uh, what I want to talk about. I, th- th- I'm going to break every, well, let me, I teach preaching. I teach homiletics in seminary. And I usually tell guys, if you have a big, long outline, that's probably not good. Well, I have 15 points coming up right now, okay? 15, and they're going to be fast. This is just brother to brother. This is shepherding, okay? I want to give you 15 reasons to be committed to expository preaching. 15 reasons to be committed to expository preaching. Now, what is expository preaching? I know most of you know this. I'm not trying to insult anyone. Expository preaching simply means when you preach, you are using that time to explain the Bible, what it says and what it means. I was, um, Dason was talking about John MacArthur. I was uh, a a 10th grader uh, in um, uh, East Ridge, Tennessee. And uh, a friend of mine, told me about John MacArthur, and so I, I began listening to him. There was one time that he had a 12-tape cassette tape. Some of us are old enough to remember cassette tapes, right? 12-tape uh, series on the believer's armor from Ephesians chapter 6. I remember plugging the first tape in about 9.30 or 10 one night and finishing up the 12th tape about 6 or 7 the next morning. I, I, I couldn't stop. And this will tell you a little bit about the church I grew up in. Are you ready for this? I remember finishing that series and saying, what an incredible idea. Like for a preacher, during the preaching time, during the sermon, like to explain Bible verses? Wow, mind blown. I had no idea that I just tasted of what expository preaching is. Why be committed to that kind of preaching, to explaining what the Bible says? Let me give you 15 reasons. Number one, expository preaching, and you can just use the the last part of these sentences if if you're taking notes. Expository preaching is the only response to the attributes of Scripture. It's the only fitting response to the attributes of Scripture. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as the, far as the division of spirit and soul, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts of the heart. If the Bible, think about this, if the Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative, and clear, and the very Word of God are the words of the living God, then for the preacher to use anything else as his source material during a sermon is spiritual treason. It would be like 
withholding milk from a baby. I just got a text a few minutes ago that uh, I have to leave from the conference and go to a funeral this afternoon and perform a funeral. After that, I just got a text. I'm going to go by Children's Mercy Hospital because there's a baby who was just born a couple weeks ago in our, in our church who um, the, has having trouble passing the milk through their system, so they have to do surgery. But the baby is starving to death and dehydrating because the milk is not getting into the system. For a man to stand in the pulpit and not to talk about what God has said and only what God has said and no more than what God has said is starving the congregation. It's just like that baby that's dying without intervention because the milk is not getting in. MacArthur has said, the only logical response to inerrant scripture is to preach it expositionally. So what are you using as your source material for your sermons on Sunday morning? Number two, expository preaching obeys the command of Scripture. It obeys the command of Scripture. It's pretty simple. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. You can tell almost everything you need to know about a church by what happens in the pulpit. That tells you what they believe about the, 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 the power and authority of the word of God or what they believe about their own thoughts. The content of preaching must be God's message as revealed in the scriptures. We're called to preach God's thoughts, God's words recorded in the Bible, not our own. 1 Timothy 4, 13, Until I come, Paul says, give attention to the public reading of scripture to exhortation, exhortation and to preaching or teaching. Number three, expository preaching follows the example of preachers in scripture. It follows the example of preachers in Scripture. In an interview with a man named Ed Stetzer, Andy Stanley, the pastor of North Point Community Church in Metropolitan Atlanta, was asked this. What do you think about verse-by-verse preaching messages, verse-by-verse preaching through books of the Bible? Andy Stanley answered, Guys that preach verse-by-verse through books of the Bible are just cheating It's cheating because that would be easy, first of all. That isn't how you grow people. No one in the scripture modeled that. There's not one example of that, end quote. Well, there's so many naive assumptions in that quote. First of all, the book of Acts gives a lot of examples of people using the words of God in the Old Testament to preach. But it's hard to preach the New Testament if the New Testament hadn't been written. So the, the question is silly from the beginning, or his answer is. I preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. That doesn't mean that sometimes you don't do topical messages, which is just systematic theology. There's a place for that. But by and large, I I think that the steady diet of the church ought to be verse 1 to the end of a book. Or even like if you're doing the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But getting a context. Why? Because that's how God wrote it. He didn't give us a systematic theology. He didn't give us an encyclopedia. He gave us these books. So understanding what he said in the way he said it ought to be the best way to feed God's people. That's how he wrote it. It seems to me that's how he wants it to be heard. Number four, we're going to go fast. 
Expository preaching establishes the authority of Scripture in the church. It establishes the authority of Scripture in the church. This is how you feed people. Why should they listen to you? Not because you're smart, but because you tell what God says. Scripture is the absolute authority for Christ's church. It trains us in righteousness. It prepares us for ministry. It leads us to the person and work of Christ alone. And churches need to desire more than anything to be Scripture-saturated, exalt God's Word at every level. Expository preaching elevates God's Word by making it the foundation and focus of church life. My, can I just be personal with you? Tomorrow morning, I'll... We'll have two services at Mission Road and 8.30 service. We'll have the music, announcements. We have a, a baptism, actually, tomorrow. And, and then I'll get up to preach. And just a little secret between you and me, my favorite sound all week, tomorrow I'll say, take your copy of God's Word and let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And then I'll listen. And to hear hundreds of Bibles open and pages flip just almost brings me to tears that they brought their Bible because they were expecting to hear from it. Number, number five. Number five. Expository preaching reveals the mind and logic of God. It reveals the mind and logic of God. This is why it's good or best to preach through those books of the Bible. Nowhere do we find God's mind and perspective other than His Word. I was watching a news show about two weeks ago, and they had a couple of guys on there. They had a Roman Catholic and a Protestant preacher and a, a, another guy I couldn't recognize what he was. And they were, they were talking about something theologically or something that was happening in the culture and I was so disappointed that they, all three of these men kept saying, well, I think, 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 well, I think. It, it doesn't matter what you think. I just wanted somebody to say, can I tell you what God's Word says? If people, there, there have been people a little upset about what we've been teaching in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33 on wives and husbands. But when they've registered a complaint We've graciously said, if you're, if you're disagreeing with what the Bible says, we're, we're okay. Because it's not what I'm saying. It's, this is, we're just, blame us for believing the Bible. Don't blame us for inventing a message. Because we're not. It's the mind and logic. Number six, expository preaching provides the example for how the church should read and interpret the Bible or how the church should read and interpret the Bible. Let me give you a sentence that, that may take a little explanation. Preaching is public hermeneutics. Hermeneutics are principles of interpretation. Preaching is public hermeneutics. I'm aware every Sunday morning that the way I read and interpret and apply the Scripture will be the pattern for how people read and apply and interpret the Scripture in their quiet times. It's the example so it's important for a preacher not only to say, this is what God's Word says, but to show how he came to that conclusion. We're, we're doing hermeneutics. We're interpretation, doing interpretation with the church every Sunday morning. Said another way, every sermon is a Bible study. Well, you just heard, I don't want to puff his head up from Tony, 
was a Bible study. It was the exposition of 1 Peter 5. That's what we should be feeding on. Number seven, preaching sets the agenda for the church. Oh, this is so important. Preaching sets, expository preaching rather, expository preaching sets the agenda for the church. We're watching a tragic trend in our society play out, and especially in Bible-believing churches. People drift from the mission. They think the church is about this or that. It's about racial reconciliation. It's about feeding the poor. It's about building uh, water pipes in Africa. Those are wonderful things to do. It's just not the primary mission of the church. And you stay on target with the mission of the church by exposition. You, you hear what God says, and you apply what God says, then you're doing what God wants. Number eight, expository preaching prevents hobby horses in the church. Hobby horses in the church. You say, what's a hobby horse? It's just something that you want to talk about a lot. This should be obvious. We are pre- if we're preaching through books of the Bible, then the subject of the sermon is simply the next verse. I don't get to pick what I preach on. The text picks me. It's all too easy to preach on what's on your heart or to use the pulpit as a bully speech or a political speech. But if you preach expositionally, then you have to, you're subject to what the next verse says. Which leads to number nine. Expository preaching forces the church to deal with hard texts. You don't get to skip hard texts. You have to deal with them. And that's that public hermeneutics. When you come to hard text, baptism now saves you. And what Peter says, what does that mean? Well, we had to deal with that when we went through First and Second Peter. What it doesn't mean. True exposition does not have the luxury of skipping hard texts. We look at them corporately and see that all Scripture truly is inspired by God. Number 10. Expository preaching equips the congregation for personal ministry. It's the way you get people ready to do ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 say it's for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. That's what the gifted preacher is to do. When a church models faithful reading of Scripture and application of Scripture and explanation of Scripture, church members are equipped to share the word with others and to do what it says. Number 11, expository preaching meets unforeseen needs. It meets unforeseen needs. I can't tell you how many times I've seen God use passages that I've preached on in very unexpected ways. You know when I said you can't, pre- you can't skip hard texts? I spent five years preaching through Romans. And I remember when we got to Romans chapter 4 on circumcision. I had to sp- preach two weeks on Circumcision. I think the title of that series was Salvation is Not by Surgery. Well, I'm all for a month, I'm looking at that going, oh my goodness, I got to preach on circumcision. I got to explain what circumcision is and then talk about why it mattered. uh, I mean, I was kind of dreading it, dreading it. And embarrassingly, I hate to say this to Logan and to Tony, but I was, I didn't have a good attitude about preaching those texts. I remember looking at my sermon on that, that Sunday morning about 
you know, salvation is not by surgery and talking about circumcision and going, ah, I just got to get through this and get to the, the good stuff. I preached that first sermon on circumcision and Abraham. And that afternoon, I got an unusual call that I don't get a lot. A woman called me in tears and said, Pastor, I got to tell you, I was so convicted by what Paul said this morning that I realized I have been fooling myself and my family about my salvation, and I truly gave my life to the Lord. She was converted on a, about a, uh, from a sermon on circumcision. God's word is that powerful. And I felt like God was saying, yeah, how was your attitude there, Rick? Uh, good job, faithful preacher boy. Meets unforeseen needs. Number 12, expository preaching constructs, it creates a biblical theology. In other words, you begin making connections. Um, you heard from Tony a minute ago. I'm sure you heard from Logan. It's, it's almost every time an expositor preaches a passage, you end up making connections with other passages. What that does is it shows you how God has said the same things in different ways, in different places, with different depths and different nuances. So you construct with connective tissue, putting those together, a biblical theology. Number 13, expository preaching challenges the preacher's life. I cannot emphasize the power of God's word in my own life as I study it each week. I'm in a second week of probably five I'm going to do on a husband's loving headship in Ephesians chapter 5 right now. I know what's going to happen. Some dear brothers are going to come tomorrow after the service and say, oh, thanks, Rick. That was, that was really convicting. And I say, praise God's word. What they don't understand is I have been under the pounding weight of that text all week. And I just want someone else to share the conviction that I've had. It changes your life. But men, that change is mitigated if you're preparing your sermons on Saturday night at 10 o'clock. Do you study for your sermons in such a way that if you never preached it, it was still wonderfully joyful and sufficient for your own heart? Number 14, two more. Expository preaching generates an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective. Hearing God's word week by week gets our hope out, out of the evening news and places it in the hands of King Jesus. John Stott has a great book called Between Two Worlds. You, you can always tell if it's on preaching, if men have read that book or if they haven't by how they explain it. Because when he says between two worlds, uh, he's not talking about like heaven and earth. He's talking about between two worlds, meaning that the preacher actually stands between the biblical world and the current world. And we bridge those together. So we're looking back, we're looking at the present, and we're looking at the future. And the expository sermon brings those together in the theology and the hearts of our people. And then number 15, lastly, 
looking at feeding our people through expository preaching. Expository preaching ensures doctrinal accountability in a local body. An interesting thing happens in churches that preach expositionally. People start bringing their Bibles to church. People start asking questions. People start saying, hey, how does this square and make sense with what Hosea said or what, what, what Ezekiel said? I'm accountable. One of the things that caused the Reformation to flourish is putting the Bible back into the hands of the people. Before that, the priest would stand up either in Latin or in uh, erudite theological language and say, this is what God says or means, and they couldn't be held accountable. Praise God that most of the people in our church, our, my church, bring their Bible, and they hold me accountable to what it says. It ensures doctrinal accountability. Just a little footnote to that. We were talking in our elders meeting just two weeks ago. And we said, you know, with, with, I have thousands of sermons online on the Internet. Our church is a very defined doctrinal statement. And I said, Satan is going to attack us, but he probably won't attack us doctrinally because we're so accountable. But he will attack us on unity. He's clever. But I praise God that we're accountable doctrinally. So here's a question. Men, are you feeding your people what will really nourish and satisfy their hearts and their souls? It's God's word, not our thoughts, not politics, not, not pop psychology. You heard it in the first session. Let me say it again. You and I will one day be held accountable just as God did those shepherds in Ezekiel 34. Will he be able to look you in the eye and say, you faithfully explained to my people what I said from my book? Or will we start giving excuses of why we preached and said anything and everything other than what he said? Man, I'm... I'm terrified not to preach God's word. Terrified. The expectation that God has is exactly what he said in Ezekiel 34. Woe to the shepherds who did not feed my sheep. What's that feeding? Peter says it's the pure milk of the what? word. So let me just encourage you. This is probably more of a lecture than a sermon. What's the problem? Shepherds who don't feed the sheep. What's the solution? Feeding the sheep the word of God. What are the implications? Expository preaching. Preaching the Bible as God wrote it, verse by verse. I don't know what, this is a little bit of a confession. I don't know what I would preach if I wasn't going through books of the Bible. I mean, what are the options? Let me encourage you to listen for that sweet sound when you get up on Sunday mornings of Bibles opening and pages flipping to get to where you're going to explain to them what God said, what he meant by what he said, but no more, no more than what God said.
there will be a revival of epic proportions of depth, not necessarily breadth, in the churches and the Micronesian and American context if we're faithful to obey what he said. Preach the word. Don't substitute anything for the only thing that can feed the souls of our people. Father, give us grace to be convicted, to be faithful, to be accurate. I pray for these brothers who will be preaching in the coming days and weeks and months, years, decades, that they again will hear well done by how they've used their time in the pulpit to explain what you've said and what you meant by you, what you said and never to go beyond what you said. Make us expositors that please the Lord Jesus who left us his word for your glory and for the good and the equipping of your saints, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.